Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. So would you open up your Bibles, please, to... Uh, we're going to read another account of the triumphal entry from the Gospel of Matthew. And it's pretty similar, but uh, we'll read it from Matthew and then spend some time looking at this history of what happened with Jesus a couple thousand years ago as he was at the end of three years. You remember that he spent the first 30 years of his life working, we think probably as a carpenter. Um, you remember how he was born. When he was born, it was quite a scandal that uh, Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem, but out in a little hick town. And that the people that were told about it, when the angels told, were, were, uh, were shepherds. And in fact, before we read scripture, I'm just going to say a few words about that. You know, I've been reading uh, books on shepherds, uh, um, real shepherds, not fake ones like me. Um, you know that the word pastor just is the word shepherd. That's all it is. Pastor, you know, I'm one that pastures you. So that's where the word comes from. And so reading about shepherds is a real encouragement. I started a new book this week, and it was written, I think, back in the, in the late 70s. And in this book, it begins by talking about, and most of these books have a theme about how, and most of them are set in England, all right? And most of them have the theme about how nobody respects shepherds. All right, and this book begins by lamenting the the way that the the nation of England takes for granted the shepherds, and so one of the first things in this book is that this guy proposes and they actually implement a contest in England and Scotland, I think, and the contest is they're going to start having a shepherd of the year. Now somebody's giggling. You should all be laughing because it's so stupid. Why would you have shepherd of the year? That's like having a 4-H competition for the best apple pie. You know, I mean, it's just so common. So, you know, you could have Steph Curry of the year. You know, he could, he could be like most improved basketball player and most valuable player the same year, right? You could have president of the year. You could have bombast of the year, and that's Trump. You could have all kinds. You could have all kinds of different things of the year. But who would ever think of having a shepherd of a year? You just wouldn't think of it. And the reason they started it is because they felt like nobody cared about the shepherds. So they began this thing in the late 70s where they would have, I think, four or five judges, and they look at all the shepherds in the UK, and then they'd choose one to be shepherd of the year. And what a shepherd does is a shepherd spends his time dealing with very stupid sheep. And sheep are stupid, if any of you have been around sheep. Sheep are so stupid that if they get caught in barbed wire, they don't know how to get loose. And so shepherds, another thing that happens with sheep is they'll go up against a fence 
and, and they'll never leave in a snowstorm. And, and so you have to, they have certain dogs that are very good at going to drifts and knowing when there are sheep underneath the drift. So it's like, it's like a hunting dog, but these fine sheep that are covered by snow because they'll die very, very quickly. And not only that, but they smell. Sheep smell. And, um, you know, it sounds real romantic to go to a place that's, you know, uh, where sheep eat, a pasture, right, or, or a hill. And, uh, but it actually has a pervasive smell. And... Um, pervasive articles on the ground that cause that smell. (laughs) And when Jesus was born, his birth was not announced to President Obama and it wasn't announced to Donald Trump. It was announced to the shepherds out at night with their sheep and the closest I think we can come to is truckers at at a love truck stop, something like that all the engines running, air heavy with the diesel fumes. So now, he's lived 33 years. When he was born, the announcement was very, very humble at night. His his mother was in with a bunch of animals. And it's 33 years later, he's worked for three years as a carpenter probably with his dad probably, or brothers or something, because you do whatever your family did. And then he spent three years going around and healing, casting out demons, and teaching, preaching, teaching. And now he is going to do the work that he has been sent to do. And what is that work? That work is to die. The work that Jesus came to do was to die. He came to be the perfect sacrifice. He came to be the perfect lamb who would allow his blood to be shed so that you and I could be covered by that blood before God because we're wicked and nothing but the blood of Jesus will clean us before the holy God. And so he's, 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 he's set his eyes on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is what? The city of kings. Jerusalem is the capital, but it's the city of kings, right? He's told his disciples a number of times that he's going there to die. His disciples are really ticked off about it because they love him. They've spent three years with him. They don't want him to die, and they don't want to see this great movement of of excitement, of healing, of Lazarus being raised from the dead just outside of Jerusalem, of the storms being calmed, all this stuff, you know, it's unbelievable what's happened. Thousands of people have gathered to hear him preach and teach because you remember when they had to feed them after he was done preaching and teaching, there were 3,000, there were 5,000 people. Everything about Jesus has been humble. Everything about him has been humble. Those angels that announced his birth could have been over Jerusalem, but they were out over shepherds. When he's healed people, he said to them, don't tell anybody. This is a theme throughout his whole ministry. Don't tell anybody. He keeps saying to the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer and die. Peter, you remember, says, 
No. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? And so now we pick up the story. This is the beginning of the last week of his life. And you remember I said everything's been humble. It's been shepherds, truck drivers. It's been absolutely poor. It's been out in the despised parts of the country. It hasn't been Bloomington. It's been, it hasn't been Purdue. It hasn't been Indianapolis. You know, it's been... Uh, where? Well, I think even Spencer is actually way too high for Nazareth. I always think of it as being out where Mike and Lisa live. You know, where they're... Uh, uh, what is that, Peru? Brazil and Peru? Bedford? Um, in Wisconsin, I can tell you exactly where it is, but I won't, I won't bother doing that. So he's, he's been in the despised part of the country. Can anything good come from Nazareth, is what is said. And now, now... Now he's coming to the capital. Now he's coming to the city of the kings. And the wraps are taken off. Okay? So here is the word of God, which is eternally true. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to them, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. What a wonderful, wonderful account. I always think of uh, the triumphal entries, the one time when they got it right. You know, all the stops were pulled out, everything was just loud, and Jesus got glory. 
Jesus got glory, right? Now, we know that uh, Jesus had a direction and a focus all through his life. Um, His life was never immobilized by uncertainty. He knew what he was doing. He had purpose, and he did it. And so he pauses about two miles east of Jerusalem. Now, how far is two miles? Well, if we were to walk over to to, uh, Indiana 37 and back again, that would be about two miles. And so you know it wouldn't take long to do that. You know, he didn't need the donkey. You know, he wasn't tired and somebody bring me a donkey. So the reason that he had the disciples go and get the donkey was that he intended to enter the city of the kings mounted and receiving honor. And so don't think that this was a spontaneous combustion. It wasn't. Jesus wanted everybody to see that he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. God has said about his son that because he humbled himself to death, even the death on the cross, that he has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Now, we as Americans have a tremendous difficulty having any concept of the word Lord, you know? You remember the story of David and Annie, you know? Yes, my Lord. And it's like the whole room shook because nobody calls anybody a Lord here in this country, right? I mean, the whole purpose of being an American is we don't ever have to call anybody the Lord and certainly not management if you're in the union. Right? And so we hear that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it just kind of flows off of us, you know. We think, okay, he's Lord, big deal, big whoopee. He's not here, and so I don't have to humble myself, you know. But Lord is above me, it's above you, and it's certainly above your children. And it is above, it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And I always think about Hitler. I think about Papa Joe Stalin. I think about Pol Pot. I think about Mao Zedong. I think about Ronald Reagan. I think about Donald Trump. Who says he doesn't need forgiveness. You've read that. He says he doesn't need forgiveness from God. You've read that. I want all of you to know when you vote for him that this is a man who says he doesn't need the forgiveness. I'm not telling you who to vote for, trust me. I don't have a clue who I'm going to vote for. (laughs) I see no good options, you know. Bill Gates will call him Lord. Tim Cook, Steve Jobs. Do you understand this? And here he comes, and he's on a donkey. Now, do you have a sense that the bling is absent? Okay? It's not like, uh, have you read about the Iron Butterfly touring the world in their special 
uh, Boeing 737 or 747, and their drummer's a pilot, and he's flying them around. Yeah, anybody read about that? A big iron butterfly on the back wing, you know, everywhere they go. You remember Inagata De Vida? Any of you remember Inagata De Vida? That's the band. So they're going all over the world, and they have their plane, and it has a huge butterfly on the, and, and taxiing, they, they like smeared their engines. It's funny. Thank you for laughing. Okay, so that's Iron Butterfly. Now let's go to Donald Trump. He has his unbelievable plane, right? Now let's go to President Obama. Now that's serious bling. Right? Air Force One. <laughs> and here's Jesus. And he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he has guys, he doesn't even own the donkey. He has guys go in and say to the guy that owns the donkey and the foal, the master has need of them. So they're borrowing the stupid donkey. Yesterday we were celebrating Mary Lee's mother's 99th birthday. 99. And all 10 of her children were there and most of the spouses, that's what I am, a spouse of a child. And those children have 28 grandchildren. Those 28 grandchildren now have had uh, 70, about 75 great-grandchildren. So this woman, between her grandchildren and great-grandchildren, has over 100. All right? And do you think anybody cares about Mum Taylor's grandchildren and great-grandchildren? They could not give a rip. Right? If anything, if I were to put that up on Facebook, you know what people would call her? They'd call her a breeder. And it would be distasteful because look at all the carbon footprints that are going on there. You think of all the, think of all the beautiful uh, natural resources that are being consumed by all the descendants of that woman. Now, I'm not kidding at all. You look at the reaction of the important rich people to these children singing the praises of Jesus. Did you notice this? The important rich people are furious that these little children are praising Jesus. They're furious. Why would you be furious at little children praising Jesus? Why? Well, you know why. It's not just because you're jealous of Jesus. That's a lot of it, right? You know your heart, right? And you know you would have been jealous of Jesus because of the honor he received, right? You know that about your heart, right? You know that, okay? I wouldn't. Okay, all right, okay. But you know, it's not just because they're jealous of the honor that Jesus is receiving. It's also because it is infuriating when children get something right that you are adamantly committed to getting wrong. It's hard for your wife to rebuke you, right? But when your child rebukes you, what are you going to do? Get mad at a child? <laughs> you know, you're going to tell the child to shut up. You know, and then there's 
there are probably hundreds of them, because this was back in the day when they had kids and liked them. But to have those children rebuking you, and so they try to get Jesus to shut them up. You remember that? And Jesus says, hey, if these children are silent about me, the stones will cry out. Everything about this day, Jesus is absolutely committed to showing the world who he is. Okay? None of it's accidental. He's going to come into the city of kings as a king. And there's going to be no bling. No bling, no, not even black Chevy Suburbans. I have a friend who's a secret service agent, you know, and, and you can see him in all these pictures, not him, but you can see them in all these pictures. And yesterday we were going in for this birthday party for Mum Taylor, and out in front of this fancy place where we were having our brunch was this perfectly clean black Suburban, and I thought, President Obama's here, <laughs> you know. All you guys that own Suburbans, if you got them black, you know, think what people would think about our church, other than people have lots of kids. That's, generally, it's either Secret Service or lots of kids. Those are the only two options for Chevy Suburbans, you know. So anyhow, the children are, are screaming. They're out of control in their praise of Jesus. Now, how much do you think the children understood what they were doing? Do you think the children understood that Jesus was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Eh, generally, children do what? Generally, children do what they see their parents doing. And so their parents were the ones who undoubtedly had taken off their cloaks, their coats, and had first put them on the back of the donkey. Why? Well, so that Jesus wouldn't sit on hair and sweat. It's not real glamorous. Then it says, Calvin puts it like this, Calvin says that they were strawing, that they were strawing the path with their coats. And a, a week and a half ago when I was working on a bunch of patches of uh, uh, where stumps had been, we, I was seeding them and then I got done seeding, what did I do? I got a bale of straw, brought it over, pulled off you know, the twine, and then started strawing all this. That's what they were using their coats for. They were like throwing it like straw, right? And then they were doing something that would undoubtedly win the commendation of everybody that shops at Blooming Foods, which is they were peeling branches off of trees and throwing the branches down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine how Bloomington would tisk tisk over that? There's no bling. There's absolutely no bling. They're using their own coats and throwing them in the dirt, and then they're peeling branches off of trees and throwing them in front of the donkey. The children are the most prominent part of the whole scene. And what are the children saying? The children are, are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And what does the word Hosanna mean to you? And here's the truth. The truth is the word Hosanna does not mean squat to you. 
We say it, the kids say it. If we were to ask the kids what they were saying, they'd have no clue what they were saying. Is there any? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cynthia, what, what does the word Hosanna mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 you don't know. No, you don't know, and you've been taught well by your mother. You make a good guess, right? Remember that when you take tests. Is there any child here that knows what the word Hosanna means? The word Hosanna is a transliteration of a Greek word. And the Greek word Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. In other words, there's no way that you would know what Hosanna means. Because all the English guys did was they took the Greek word and just simply made it sound like that in English. They didn't translate it, they transliterated it. So that's like when you have, like the, say, an English word like vocabulary, and in the language you're translating into it has no word like vocabulary, but you take their letters, whatever their letters are, and you set them up in such a way that it sounds like vocabulary. So what Hosanna is, is the Greek word Hosanna, right? And the Greek word Hosanna is the Hebrew word Hosanna, right? Except it's not a Hebrew word, it's a Hebrew phrase. And it means, Lord, save us, or save us, please, or I plead, save us, save us, please. So you take two words in Hebrew that are save us, please, you, you transliterate it into Greek and it's save us, and then you transliterate it into English and it's Hosanna. So that's what it sounds like in Hebrew. It sounds like Hosanna in Hebrew, Hosanna in Greek, Hosanna in English. And what it's come to mean in English is what? Praise God. <laughs> you know? Why does it mean praise God? Well, it means praise God because what it means in Hebrew is, Lord, save us. And can you understand how if you're crying out to Jesus, Lord, save me, he answers the prayer and Hosanna becomes an incredibly joyful statement because now it's a statement of fact, he saved me, right? So Hosanna can mean Lord, save me, please, please save me. And it can mean, please save me, you've saved me. So it can mean both things, both what you're pleading with God for and what God has done for you, save me. Now, what are little children asking to be saved from? I mean, think about that. What are they asking to be saved from? Well, they're asking to be saved from whatever their parents are asking to be saved from. Because that's what kids do. What were their parents asking to be saved from? Was it raining? No. Were they in a ship and were the waves hitting the ship? No. Did somebody have a bow and arrow on them? No. So what were they asking to be saved from? Now... There are two options here, I think, all right? One option is that they were asking to be saved from the Roman Empire. Think of, uh, uh, think of Iraq or Afghanistan and the United States and its wealth and power. 
And so you're Afghan, and you don't want America there. And so you have some native-born Afghan from way out in the hinterlands, and he's entering the city, Kabul, you know, and, and you say, save us, save us. And everybody knows what you mean is get, get, the, get the Americans out of here, right? And we know that a lot of the pressure on the religious leaders at the time was because they felt like their leadership of of the Jews was, in, was jeopardized by Jesus' popularity. Jesus was getting so popular that they felt like they couldn't speak for the nation anymore. You know, there were so many people following Jesus that it, it, it threatened them being able to produce the support of the nation for the Roman Empire, which occupied Israel at the time, okay? And so, typically, what we think, we don't think it explicitly what we think is well you know they hated the romans they hated the taxes they hated the tax collectors they hated having occupying armies they hated the idols they that that romans served everything about romans stank to them and they just wanted them out and so what was really going on here is that everybody was expecting that jesus was going to all of a sudden, you know, take off everything that had hidden him from this time, and he was going to show himself to actually be a military strategist, and he was going to lead an army, and if anybody on his army died, they were, he was going to raise them from the dead. So they'd whoop the Romans, because nobody would ever die, because he'd raise them from the dead, and he'd calm the storms, and right? Lord, save us! And it's Rome. Now, here's the other option. The other option is that the reason they were saying, Lord, save us, is that each of them deep in their heart, deep, deep, deep in their heart, way, way down there, where nobody else knows, no one, because you would not breathe a word of it, right? You have a relationship with Jesus. And so everybody here had a relationship with Jesus, Deep, deep, deep down. Way down there where you have sin that nobody knows about. And so deep, deep down, everybody calling out, Lord, save us, was, was actually a sinner convicted of their sin who wanted Jesus to save them from their sin. But nobody else knew that they were sinners, but somehow spontaneously everybody was crying out for the Lord to save them. They were going to have a personal relationship with Jesus and they were going to, deep inside, deep down where nobody knows, they were going to have some sense. Now, this is the church in America today. Hypothetically, you know, you know supposedly we're all sinners and that's why we're here, but we look so clean. And I suppose if, I suppose if we got to know each other really well, then we, then we might know that sometimes, just occasionally, we don't have positive thoughts about other people. And that's all we'll cop to, you know, doing a plea bargain with God. Well, sometimes, occasionally, I didn't have positive thoughts about everybody, especially my aunt. I've just been at a family reunion. <laughs> Don't worry, I have so many of them. If they listen to this, they'll never know which of them it is. You know? <laughs> but, but, but then why are the children saying, Lord, save us? 
You know, little children don't know that they're sinners. And little children don't know that their parents are sinners. Now, I'm being funny. Because, of course, the sin that we need to be saved from is not really down there at all. It's, it's, it's vomiting out of our mouths every time we open our mouths. Our wives know our sin perfectly. Our husbands know our sin. And let me tell you, our children know our sin. I'm just a shepherd, and you know my sin. And so I don't think it's this. I don't think it's that they were asking for Rome to save them. These are little people. Little people don't really care which regime is in power. You know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? I don't think that anybody who had spent years listening to Jesus thought of their sin as something deep down inside that maybe sometimes they didn't have positive thoughts about other people. Because that's not how Jesus preached. Do you understand me? Jesus didn't preach like that. Every time you listened to Jesus, you came more under conviction of your sin. That's what Jesus did. You've heard that it's said to you, you know, that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if any man looks at a woman with lust in his eye, he's already committed adultery with her. Does that sound like a preacher that's causing you to think that deep down within, <laughs> you may have some sin? <laughs> Everything Jesus did intensified the gap that was the chasm that was unbridgeable between the holiness of God and our depravity. And I say our, including Christians, non-Christians, men, and yes, women. Okay, long discussion recently about whether or not we should refer to a woman who buys an abortion as a murderer. And I say, give them the dignity of their sex. Can we finally have women being moral agents with men? <laughs> women sin, men sin, and yes, little children sin. And you know, little children usually are more sensitive to their sin than adults are. Those children crying out knew they were sinners. Do you understand this? We had a situation recently. I can't tell the story and I can't ask for it to be told, but this little child had to confess to his teacher the horrible sin he had committed against her. And I mean, it is a howler. Because the sin, this child, and, and this child referred to his sin when he was t confessing his sin against his teacher to his teacher. This child referred to his sin as um, wicked, wicked, wicked. It, 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 it just, his conscience was completely wasted about how awfully he had sinned against his teacher. Children know their sin. We have to instruct them not to think about their sin. That's the whole purpose of growing our children up. Most Americans spend their time trying to remove from their children the conviction of sin. And the reason is most Americans don't know that it's our privilege to know our sin. Most Americans don't know that the principal thing that is the gift that God gives to us that gives us a living heart instead of a dead one is conviction of sin. Most Americans don't know that the reason the Holy Spirit is a precious gift to us 
is that he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's why we love the Holy Spirit. And so here you have all these beautiful, beautiful nothings and their children. And they're crying out, Hosanna in the highest! And what they're crying to be saved from is their thinking, their speaking, their acting, their lusting, their envying. Remember the Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't have known what envy was if the law had not told me. They know they're sinners. And Jesus has loved them, how? By spending three years helping them to grow in their awareness of what? Of their sin. And that's why they love Jesus. <laughs> it's just like completely contrary to everything you've ever heard about what religion should be. You know? And guess what? The more they saw their sin, the more they loved Jesus. You know that about the disciples, right? You remember when Jesus says he has to suffer and die, and Peter says, no, Lord, never. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Do you think right, right after he had had Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, do you think Peter loved him less or loved him more? Which do you think it was? My experience is always that if we will live by faith and point out sin in ourselves and others and help us to see how far short of the glory of God that we've fallen, my experience is that people always love us more. Why? Well, first of all, because it takes humility to point out sin in somebody else. And you say, oh, no, no, that's just moralism and censorious. And I say, yeah, you can point out sin to other people in a way that is censorious and moralistic and judgmental and all that stuff. But people know the difference between somebody who does it so they can feel superior to you and somebody who does it because they love you, right? And Jesus had been pointing out sin for three years, and everybody knew he loved them. And it's kind of funny because everybody also knew Jesus was superior to them, you know? But don't worry, it won't work with you. If you point out that you're superior and then try to point out their sin, it won't work. They won't love you, right? We don't ever want to do that. We don't ever want to do that. We always want to lead. When we deal with sin in other people's lives, we want to lead with our sin. They need to see humility from us. And so here they are. The kids know they have sin. The parents know they have sin. The disciples know they have sin. The donkey is not impressive the thing Jesus is riding on is just coats. It's no blanket. It's just branches with leaves. Everybody's crying out, Hosanna in the highest, and the religious leaders are furious. And they try to shut it up, right? It's scandalous to them. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus do it? Did Jesus know that it had been a rough three years and it was time to have a party? Did Jesus realize that his followers were disappointed and he, he felt like it was a, a good time to just celebrate 
the good things in life. Was this like an April picnic? You know, the winter's over and it's time to look at the daffodils. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he do it? Any idea? The reason Jesus did this is Jesus is, has three offices. Prophet. Prophet's the one that shows your sin. Priest. The priest is the one that bears your sin. And what's the third one? King. King. What Jesus was doing was he was demonstrating to the entire world for all time that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, why would Jesus do that? And if he was going to do that, why wouldn't he do it with bling? Why would Jesus do it in such a laughable way? Well, first of all, the reason Jesus would do it is because he had suppressed it for three years, and now it was time. When the Son of Man is going to show his glory by going to the cross, he's going to go to the cross as a king. He's going to go to the cross at 10th and the bypass. On a cross, the Romans, the Jews, everybody agreed that he has to die. He is calling as much attention to himself as he possibly can. Because he has come to divide men. And when that division comes, he wants it to be as clear as it can be and as loud as it can be. And let me tell you something. There were tons of people who had spent three years, or maybe even just a day, there were tons of people who had listened to Jesus preaching righteousness and showing them their sin who hated Jesus now. And who had left him. You remember how many people left when he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part in me? Those people said no. And so now, there's just some hangers on, right? You know, riffraff. And he is dividing them. And to divide them, he is making it as public as it can. And he is showing his authority. And you say, well, if he's going to show his authority, why not do it with real bling? There are few women I pity more than those who are married to Barney Fife. <laughs> I mean, let's be truthful. What woman can stand a man who's using bling? I'm your husband. You're supposed to submit to me. I mean, if you have to say it, there's something wrong with you. Right? <laughs> Nobody's laughing. You should be laughing. I mean, bling with authority is really pretty disgusting. You remember Barney, you know, he's got the badge, he's got the gun, the bullets in his pocket, you know, and he's strutting around and he's just a little man. Right? And there's the true dude, and he just oozes authority, you know? And he's always laughing at Barney. Why? Because Barney Fife is Barney Fife. Listen, authority with bling is disgusting and embarrassing. Jesus doesn't need any bling. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He could call 10,000 angels down. 
okay? For Jesus to have any Air Force One, black suburban, secret service agents, hair, bimbos, no, 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 no. Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he comes into Jerusalem. He calls attention to himself. He has little children worship him. When they complain about that, the rulers with the bling, he says, look, if you shut the children up, the stones are going to cry out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be king, and I'm going to be worshipped. Do you understand me? And then, and then, what does he do? <laughs> it's like, it's a perfect storm. He goes right into this church, and all the elders are here, and the pastors are here, and the presbytery's meeting that day. And he takes a whip to it all. He takes a whip to it all. And listen, the account of the cleansing of the temple had happened twice in his ministry. Twice he went in and ripped it to shreds. And that account is always offensive to women. And it always quickens the heart of men. What a wonderful thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have Jesus come in here and discipline us? And you say no. And I say, when was the most tender time that you had with your children? Always the most tender time is when you discipline them. Why? Well, because there's nothing a father does to his son that, that, that more directly communicates his love for his son is when he disciplines his son. We all know this is true. So Jesus showed his love for the church. He went in, he cleaned the temple. He said, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And they had turned it into a den of thieves. And he ripped it to shreds. He used a whip, he flipped the tables, the money was going everywhere. And if you think the religious leaders were angry before, <laughs> but do you think there may have been some religious leaders there who loved him when it was over? I have said for decades. When I grew up, Mary Lee and I grew up, we used to go to the Christian Booksellers Convention, okay? And now to advertise a book on fatherhood that somebody in this church has done, we have hired a woman who helps to advertise that, that thing. It's called the Christian Booksellers Convention, although they, now they've taken book out of it. Now it's like the Christian Merchandising Convention, all right? And I'm telling you, bling, like you've never seen. Mary Lee and I used to go. I remember, Mary Lee and I both remember, we didn't know each other at the time, but going to the El Cortez Hotel in, in San Diego where they had the glass elevator on the outside, you know, and, and just exhibit halls filled with bling. I mean, exhibit halls with exhibits that are like two stories tall and, and, and where you can go in and have famous authors sign your books and famous CDs of musicians. The musicians are there putting on concerts and George Beverly Shea, you know, Billy Graham's, you know, with his great voice, you know, and he'd be there and, and, and everybody famous was there. I mean, you have no idea the amount of money. 
you have no comprehension the amount of bling at the Christian Booksellers Convention. It's like a $4 billion a year industry. Okay? And every time I preach this text, I just have this fantasy of going into that convention and just ripping it to shreds. Do you think that it would be a sad day if all the Christian musicians and all the Christian publishers and all the Christian books and all the bling was gone? Do you think that the godliness index would go down in America? If all the websites and all the conferences, we just put a moratorium on them with a sledgehammer? And what I've said to my friends who actually run these publishing companies, and I, I've said to my friends that run these companies, I've said, you know, we should go in, we should have like a chainsaw, a sledgehammer, an axe, a hatchet. But you wouldn't even need those things. All you'd need is just your children because they're all light. They have to be shipped on airplanes. And so you could just have little kids go around and push on walls and the whole thing would come down. And I say to them, you know, if we did that, I'll do it. Do you want to do it with me? And I'll say this to these publishers. And they sort of smile and don't say anything. And I say, you know, if we did it, we'd, we'd do some time. We'd get arrested, you know, and we'd have to go to jail for a while. And I said, but everybody in the whole exhibit hall would breathe a sigh of relief. And they would say it was a nasty job, but somebody had to do it. And they always smile. They always smile. Listen, we want a new church building, right, because of our kids, but we don't need a building. We've gone without carpet. All we need is what? All we need is prayer. All we need is prayer. My house will be a house of prayer. And he blew the place to smithereens. Now, ask yourself the question. Wonderful entry to Jerusalem. Everybody's screaming. The kids are going bananas. The branches on the ground. The coats under, the, under his... You know, and, you know, it's just unbelievable. Goes into the temple, and he cleans it out. Right? Now, what do you think is going to happen at the end of that week? What do you think is going to happen at the end of that week? <laughs> do you know your heart? Do you know your heart? Do you know what you would have done to Jesus when he did those things? You would have been the mob that cried out, crucify him. Why? Well, because he's holy. That's why. Jesus is holy. And we're not. There were many people who had listened to him teach for years who cried out, crucify him. And 
there's only two things that we can do with Jesus. One is to worship him and to cry out, save me, save me. Or to crucify him. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Either you cling to him the way you would in a 40-foot wave with a tiny piece of wood off the shipwreck you just... Think of how tight you'd cling to that. Either that's how you cling to Jesus or you hate him. There are no other places to stand. Either you love the Holy Spirit's ministry of helping you to see your sin and you just run to Jesus. You don't care how you look. You don't care that all the important people are laughing at you. And watch this. So Jesus cleans the temple, and then it gets to the end of the week, and they finally arrest him. He does a lot of teaching in the interim. And then this is what happens. Jesus stood before the... Now remember, this is the same week. He's come in with the little children welcoming him, (laughs) seated on a donkey, right? And at the end of the week, then he cleans the temple. And then at the end of the week, he stands before the Roman governor, whose name is Pilate, right? Pilate. So this is the United States of America's puppet governor, all right? In Afghanistan or Iraq, all right? Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. (laughs) He's facing the Roman governor. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? He's there, the king of the Jews, right? He's not called that, but that's what he's there for. He says, are you the king of Jews? Jesus says, it is as you say. Does that sound like a humble man? (laughs) No, it doesn't. No, no, it doesn't. It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. He says, it is as you say, and then he's silent. Now, now silence can be a much better weapon than speaking. And here, silence is what? Silence is authority here. He did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, you do not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Then a little later in that chapter, after having Jesus scourged, now, I don't know why we use words like that in a Bible translation, because none of you know what scourge means. It's something that, like, you get a skin disease, you know? Not scurvy, but, you know, it's a scourge, you know? You know? Scourge is when you're whipped to within an inch of your life, your back is in shreds because that's how you've been whipped. So they've whipped Jesus. His, his back is bloody. It's shredded, all right? After Jesus, having Jesus scourged, he, this is Pilate, handed him over to be crucified. So first you rip him to shreds, and then you nail him to a cross where eventually he, he can't breathe. He gets asphyxiated, all right? And it's all in public, right? Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. So, so picture this. These are very delicate men. 
the Praetorian, you know, is surrounded, you know, there's a circle of them there around Jesus, and they're Roman soldiers, the cohort, right? Can you imagine what Roman soldiers were like? So they take Jesus into the Praetorium, they surround him, they gather the whole Roman cohort around him, and then they do this, they strip him. Now, think about this, Abu Ghraib, right? You with me? Nasty, nasty occupying power. They bring the person they're about to execute into the center of the special ops. And then he's whipped, and then they strip him naked in front of them. Okay? And they put what? They put a scarlet robe on him. Now, why did they put a scarlet robe on him? Because it's the color of a king. They strip him, and then they start dressing him up like a doll. And how do they dress him? They dress him as a king. They put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. So, you know, you can imagine a tiny little stick. What is that? That's the king's scepter. You've got the king's scepter. They've got his crown. They've got the clothing in red, right? And they knelt down before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, and they took the reed, and they began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus came into Jerusalem and he said, I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you try to shut these children up, the stones will cry out. And he went in the temple and he blew it to smithereens. And then the Roman governor says, you're going to answer them. Are you the king of the Jews? He says, it is as you say. And then charge after charge after charge is made against him, and he's silent. And then they've had it. The order is given he's going to be crucified. He's given over to the, to the, to the raunchy soldiers who take him into the praetorium. They strip him. They strip him. And then they put red on him. Then they weave together and they shove it. You know, you can imagine the blood from the head now. The back's already shredded. They've already scourged him. And then they give him a scepter, which is like this little laughable stick, a reed, right? And they mock him and they spit on him. And he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. And one day, every knee that bowed to him in jest that day will bow before him because the Father will have made visible to the world the glory of his Son. You realize there is no neutral place with Jesus. There is no neutral place with Jesus. You cannot exist in indecision with Jesus. Because every single person who doesn't cry out, Hosanna in the highest, save me. 
every single person who doesn't say, save me, will be consumed by the wrath of the Father. Do you understand this? Scripture from beginning to end says that if those tenants for the absentee landlord kill the son, what do you think the father will do? And so we read a little farther in that chapter, the same chapter, Matthew 27, in the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders. So it wasn't just the Roman cohort. But now it's all the religious leaders who say this. They were mocking him. And they said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Just mocking and mocking and mocking what Jesus himself has said about who he is. And then, if we go to John, we read a very interesting exchange. It's fascinating. In John, about the crucifixion, we read that the Jews answered, Pilate said, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, Jesus was such a nice man. He was just like a velveteen rabbit or pat the bunny. He just wanted to be liked. Jesus just wanted people to see how sincere his heart was. Now, I'm being facetious. I'm being sarcastic. Because nobody who thinks they know who Jesus was would ever think that this is how he answered. The Roman ruler said, I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. <laughs> oh, it's like, Jesus doesn't seem to be wanting to be padded or cuddled. You almost get the feeling as you go to the crucifixion, you wonder, who's crucifying whom? You know, it's like Jesus is absolutely forcing the hand of the wicked so that they will have no excuse at the judgment seat of God. And so we keep going. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, what? Do you remember? He says to the Jews, behold, your king. Do you see this theme? It's everywhere. Your king. And so they cried out, the Jews, away with him. Away with him! Crucify him! And you know, some of you know why I'm so angry now. 
I'm so angry at our Bible translators because here it is, the Jews crying out, crucify him. And because the Jews have said, you can't say that because my children will be called Jesus killers. They've changed it to the religious leaders. People, on Good Friday, when we ask you who crucified Jesus, what are you going to do? You're going to say, I did? And that would be true. But what a waste when you have an opportunity of seeing the depravity of your own heart. You killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. I did not kill Jesus. You did. Now, I did kill Jesus, but I don't ever want you to escape the knowledge of the depravity of your own heart. If you had been there that day, you would have cried out, crucify him. Do you understand this? Your heart is wicked. And that's why you need Jesus. There's no hope for you without Jesus' blood. Nothing can wash your sin away except the blood of Jesus. Nothing. It's that bad. It's infinitely worse than you can even imagine. You, when you die at the age of 99 like my mother-in-law, you will still not have any idea how sinful you are. And you know how I love and adore my mother-in-law. I just wrote the dedication of this book somebody in the church wrote. And in the dedication, I say that my mother-in-law has encouraged the writing of this book, and I hope it pleases her because there's almost nobody that I would rather please who's living today than my mother-in-law. And that woman is wicked. And one of the things that's most strengthened me her whole life is the fact that when that woman prays, and I've watched it now for what, 50 years? 45 to 50. When that woman prays, every single time she prays to God, and I hear her, she tears up as she begins to pray. And you think, well, why does she tear up? Why well, the idiot knows why she tears up. Because she sees how unworthy of God listening to her she is. She can't believe that God will listen to her asking him anything. But by faith, she goes to God. The just shall live by faith. And today in the church today, the just live by having, having pastors who will just sort of you know, finagle things in such a way that everybody will realize they're actually much better than they thought they were. And we'll get people to come to church because they'll think our pastor's a hip dude. Right? Aren't I hip? And so, listen. One day we will stand before the judgment seat of God, and God will be the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. He will be God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And all the sheep and all the goats will be divided, 
And every single man, woman, and child who has cried out, Hosanna, Lord, please save me, will be welcomed into the kingdom. And not one of them because they're good. Every one of them because they ask Jesus to save them. That's it. And everyone who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Everyone that walked away when he said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Every single person who had to have their pride and their bling will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth eternally. And those are the only two categories. Those are the only two categories. And listen, I have warned you. I have warned you. I have warned you. And if I do not cry out to Jesus to save me, I will be condemned by my own words here this morning. Every one of us gets there the same way, which is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and to plead with him to lift us up. And so there's your choice. That's your choice. That's your choice. You can have the world. You can have your degrees. You can have your money. You can have your appearance. You can have your tats. You can hate management. You can hate the preacher. You can hate your wife. You can do whatever you want. But very quickly, you will be dead. And it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And when you stand before God, the only way you will be able to stand is because you have pleaded with Jesus to save you. And he says, do you remember the thieves on the cross? There were two guys crucified on either side of Jesus. You remember one of them was mocking Jesus, you know? Hey, you're, you're the king of the Jews. You're, you're the son of God. But, 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 but why don't you save yourself and save us while you're at it? And the other guy said what? You remember? He said, how dare you speak to him that way? And then he said what? Do you remember? Just very simple prayer. He said, Lord, what? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, just like that, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> Which thief are you going to be? There's only two choices. You know, Jody, uh, where are you? Can we do Psalm 2? I think, if you don't mind, yeah, let's sing Psalm 2. This is the second Psalm, Psalm 2, all right? And this is the Psalm about what God the Father is going to do to those who will not submit themselves to the kingship of his Son, all right? So here we have the division. Let's get up and sing.